So if you've ever read through the Gospels, you'll know that John is a little bit strange relative to the other three. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we would generally call the synoptic Gospels. They share a lot of the same stories. They share a lot of the same themes. Um, But John's is a little different. There are a few reasons for that. First of all, John uh, wrote his Gospel much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He was an older, wiser man when he wrote it. And he had kind of dealt with various early church and apologetic issues uh, for a long time when he sat down to write this. But it's, it's striking when you look at all the Gospels taken together how the thesis is consistent across all four. And it's this, that you're called, and the fundamental call of the Gospel is to behold your king. If you ask kind of the average, consistent, well-informed evangelical Christian to explain the gospel, they're probably going to say something like, Jesus came to die for your sins. And that's kind of the foundational element of all of this. But if we stop there, we're missing crucial pieces of the true gospel. And it leaves us with a variety of questions. And I'm going to give you these questions uh, just to think about as we work through this. Um, And we'll revisit them at the end, so don't worry too much about that. But the first question, assuming this is true, and it, it is, that Jesus came to die for our sins, why did Jesus have to die for God to forgive our sins? Why, if, if God is all-powerful, if God is as sovereign as he says he is, why does he need this punishment, this death, to forgive our sins? That's the first question. The second question is, if Jesus did have to die, why couldn't he just come down from heaven and do it? Why was he born of a virgin, and why did he live a full life in order to die? Because if you remember, Adam was just formed from the dust, and and certainly God could have done that uh, with Jesus' body, but he didn't. He was born, and he lived a full life. Why did he have to do that? And the third question is, what does the resurrection mean for us? So, what, what, the picture I'm trying to paint for you is that, yes, it's so important that Jesus came and died, but if we stop there, we're left with all of these other problems that we have to deal with and work through. And if, if our gospel message is Jesus came to die for your sins, we develop this very man-centered view. And in reality, when you look at the gospels, the fundamental call is to behold your king. But behold your king for what he did, which includes dying for your sins, but also behold your king for who he is. So we'll look at both of those things as we work through this verse. And I hope you'll see that the gospel is not about you. The gospel is not about me. The gospel is about Christ, who is our king. And our response and our call is to behold him. So we'll start, uh, we'll just work through phrase by phrase uh, this verse. And we'll start in uh, the first phrase, and the word became 
flesh. Think about sin and the root of sin. Uh, We know that sin comes from the heart. Sin finds its root um, in our nature. But does it stop there? When, when someone sins, we all know that there's real-world ramifications. They leave damage in their wake. It breaks relationships. It hurts families. Sometimes it causes physical pain and damage. And so we have to, if, if we have these real-world problems, we need real-world solutions. And so this is, this is what John presents us with as a real-world solution. The word became flesh. When you look at the word, word there, uh, the original Greek would be logos. And what John is actually doing is he's interacting with a um, Greek philosophy. And by the way, this, this, whole, this whole verse and this whole passage is really masterful in that he's interacting not only with Greek thought and with uh, Greek ideas, but he's also interacting with Jewish thought and ideas. And every single word in this verse is targeted at somebody specific. But this, this word, logos, is targeted at Stoic philosophy. And the Stoics believed that the logos, the word, uh, was this powerful, impersonal force, and all the souls of the world come from it. And when you die, your soul goes back to it. If you're thinking about, like, the Star Wars force, that's, it's kind of a similar idea that's not that far off. And so this is, this is kind of the idea that the Greeks have. And when they're looking at John's um, gospel, and he's talking about the word, they can kind of go along with all of this, like, you know, the word was God, and the word was with God. But when you come to this idea of the word becoming flesh, all of a sudden you've, you've totally turned the Greek idea on its head. And not only that, the word for flesh there is sarx, which is uh, almost a crude word. Like, he didn't say body or the word became a human, the word became flesh. And another prevalent Greek idea is that the physical world was evil and bad and that we wanted to get away from the physical world. And so John's saying, that's not at all the way that our God works. And and John is saying, we're not dealing with some powerful, impersonal force. We're dealing with a God, a deity, that takes on this so-called dirty and dark flesh. And the question is, why? Uh, to kind of give you a counter example, in uh, Islamic tradition, there's this story of a man that killed 99 people. And he, he started to feel remorseful, and um, he wanted to repent, so he goes to a priest in his city, and he says, um, how can I find forgiveness. How can I repent? And the priest said, well, what did you do? He said, I've killed 99 people. So the priest thought about it, and he said, well, I don't think there's anything you can do. That's a lot of, that's a lot of sin. That's a lot to deal with. And so guess what the man did? He killed the priest. So now he's, all of a sudden, he's killed 100 people, but he still wants to repent. He's still remorseful, and he hears that if he goes, he travels to the next city, he'll be able to repent, and there's a man there that will help him. So he decides, I'm going to, with my hundred deaths on my back, I'm going to travel to the next city. But on the way to the next city, he actually died. 
And so the angels of death and the angels of life come to his body, and they start fighting over his soul, because he was going to repent, but he'd also killed 100 people in cold blood. And so the angel Gabriel comes down, and he says, here's how we're going to settle this. If he was closer to the city that he was going to than the city he was leaving, he can go to heaven. But if he was closer to the city he was leaving, he has to go to hell. And Allah, for the Muslims, and his, his great mercy, they would say, shrunk the earth between the man and the next city so that he was closer. And this is, this is held out as a great example of Allah's mercy. But I, I hope you're recognizing a problem with this. There's a hundred dead people behind him. And Allah did absolutely nothing to deal with their death, to deal with uh, any sort of justice for those people and for their families. He killed them in cold blood. But our God is not like that. Our God has a perfect law. Our God is perfectly just. And so in order to maintain all that, in order to maintain his perfect justice and his perfect mercy, he holds out his son who becomes flesh and he takes the punishment for our sin. And notice this isn't just um, punishment for our spiritual sin. He's actually dealing with the entire scope of sin. He's not just dealing with your sinful thoughts and your desires. He's actually dealing with the real-world ramifications of your sin. And so, this means several things for us. First, when we're forgiven by Jesus, we have to understand that we can't make everything right, but Jesus can. Yes, when you sin, you should work to make it right. You should uh, work to, to make things better. But you will never be able to totally fix the messes that you make. And so we have to trust Jesus that his death covers those things, that his death paid for the physical, for the real world, for the entire scope of our sin from beginning to end. The second thing is, when you forgive other people, what you are saying is that either Jesus' death is enough or God will take care of it. And if you have faith in Christ, if you have faith in God, you will trust him to set everything right. Forgiveness, when you forgive someone else, is an act of faith in God. Ultimately, yes, there, you may be taking a hit, but ultimately, it's God that takes the hit. It's God that absorbs the penalty. And it's God that sets things right. So we've just looked at, this is the first part. This is the Jesus died for your sins part. But you'll notice that we're only like a quarter of the way through the verse. And I would argue that this is the thesis of John's whole gospel, this verse. And we're only a quarter of the way through. And we've already dealt with the Jesus died for your sins. And so the next part, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt among us. So you have this atonement aspect. 
But then we move to communion. Atonement is great. Atonement is absolutely necessary. And atonement is a mighty work of God. But God just doesn't just save us from our sin and from hell. God saves us to communion with him. Martin mentioned this on Christmas Eve, but the word here for dwelt uh, is actually the word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for tabernacle. So if, if we were to translate it really literally, we might say that Jesus, the word set up his tent among us. And John is, he's turning from his Greek, uh, he's pointing at the Greeks in the earlier part of the verse, and he's turning to the Hebrews, and he's saying, this word, this logos, who takes on flesh, he sets up his tent like God in the wilderness among his people. Now, the tabernacle was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. The tabernacle was the place where Moses went to meet with God. The tabernacle was the place where the, the cloud of God's glory came down to guide the people. It was the presence and the guidance of God. And so Jesus comes, born of a virgin, and lives his life dwelling among his people in the flesh and now in the spirit as well. And so we have not just the death of Christ, but when we receive Christ, we receive the whole Christ. We receive his birth, we receive his life, we receive his righteousness and the fight against temptation. We receive his suffering under the penalty for sin. We receive his death and we receive his resurrection. And by the indwelling of the Spirit, he continues to be with us and he continues to guide us. Do you have the Spirit of Christ? And if you do, are you heeding his presence and guidance? Are you listening? Are you watching for the cloud of his glory to guide you? When we baptize someone and we pour water over their head, I don't know if you've thought about this recently, but baptism signifies death and rebirth. This is just one aspect of it. But so when we, when we take a child to be baptized, what we're, one of the things of many that we're saying to that child is, God has called you to follow Christ into death. That is an incredibly serious thing. It, you know, it's, on some level, it's cute, and uh, it's great to see. But if, if we forget about the part where we're actually calling that child to suffer and die, to, to follow Christ in resisting temptation, to follow Christ in righteousness, to look to the example of Christ and rely on the presence of Christ to guide them. That's no light matter. And when you realize that God is calling us to death, he gives us the perfect example. And every step you take, every moment of life you live, you're moving closer and closer to following him in death.
We like to avoid death. We don't like the idea of death. But you have to understand that if, if you're going to experience resurrection, if you're going to experience resurrection with Christ, death is not optional. And so, the, with the word dwelling in us, we bow humbly, we take up our cross, and we follow him to his death. So this is where we're beholding our king for what he did. These are the things that he did. And so in the second part of the verse, we're moving from what the word did to what we do. It says, and we have seen his glory. Now, we don't know exactly what John is talking about when he says glory. He could be talking about a specific event, um, maybe the transfiguration. That would make a lot of sense. He was there. Um, possibly he's talking about the resurrected Jesus. Um, or he could even be talking about just the general ministry of Christ. In any event, he gives us two qualifiers to help us think about these things. The first qualifier he gives is that this glory is glory as of the only Son from the Father. The only Son from the Father. Now, the, the word, you may have a bunch of different translations of this. Um, all of them are pretty good, but we can't get an exact translation of this. It's, a, it's one Greek word. But it denotes a uniqueness. It's the same word in Hebrews used to describe Isaac versus Ishmael. And the concept is that this is a particular son of, there's only one son of God, but it's a particular kind of designation for the special office and role of the son of God. This is the son of God that Yahweh is talking to in Psalm 2. This, listen to what he says. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So if we're using the Old Testament to inform our understanding of who Jesus is, Jesus is the king of the world who owns the entire earth to the ends of the earth and who breaks the kingdoms and the nations with a rod of iron and dashes them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Our king is a conquering king who is taking over the world. That's a big deal. And this is, this is the son that Jesus is. This is the role and the office that Jesus fulfills. It is the glory of the conquering king. So that's the first qualifier. The second qualifier is that this son is full of grace and truth. Now this is probably John's way of rendering an Old Testament phrase that you'll probably have in your Bible translated abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it's hearkening back to this tabernacle and wilderness imagery one more time. This is in Exodus 34. And this is a phrase that's used to describe Yahweh. 
to describe the God of the Old Testament. And so what John is saying is this son, this word, is God. He has, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's full of grace and truth, the grace and truth of God. And particularly in this phrase, what he's pointing to is the covenant faithfulness of God. That this king is a righteous king who honors his commitments, who honors his promises. And he's true in the face of our whims and in the face of trials. If you think about our worldly leaders, at least in America, the way our system is set up is that politicians are, are kind of encouraged to bend to the whims of the people, right? And, you know, that is probably a good thing if they're bending to your whims, maybe not if they're bending to someone else's whims. But in any event, their kind of goal and the way that you're successful in politics in America is you bend to the whims of the people. Wherever the wind blows, you follow it. And uh, if you're for... Um, free puppies for everybody, and then everybody changes their mind, you jump up and you say, uh, no one gets free puppies because that's what the people want. Right? Our king is not like that. This is a good thing. Your king, King Jesus, does not bend to your will. He does not bend to your whims. He is a true leader who calls you to follow him. As he follows God and he... he uh, observes the law of God, and he calls you to follow him into death. So we have this righteous king, this holy king, this glorious king who is God. And so we behold our king not only for what he did, but for who he is. Several months ago, I, I watched this. It's a short documentary. You can find it on YouTube, I think, about the philosopher Herbert Fingeret. And I believe he was at UC Berkeley, um, but he was a philosopher. And his, his primary kind of area of study was death. He was not a Christian. And his argument was there was no reason to fear death because after you die, it's all nothingness. So no worries. You die, nothing happens, and everything is fine. But this, this documentary is called On Being 95. It's these um, reporters come in, and they, they interview him, and they sit in his house with him. And what they find is he's, he's really facing his death. In fact, he died a few months after they filmed this. What he finds is that he's not actually scared of death like he thought everyone was. He's actually really saddened by it. He, he says this as he sits outside. He says, As I sit out now on the deck of the house, I look at the trees, blowing a little on the breeze, and I've seen them innumerable times. But somehow, seeing the trees this time is a transcendent experience. I see how marvelous it is, and I think to myself, I've had these here all along but have I really appreciated them? And the fact is that I have not until now. And so this man is sitting on his deathbed and he's saying, I don't want to leave. 
this world is good, and I don't want to leave. The trees are beautiful, and I don't want to leave. But Christian, you don't have to live with that sorrow. You don't have to live with that grief. Because you have a king that calls you into death, but he then calls you into resurrection. If you remember the the three questions I, I posed at the beginning, first, why did Jesus have to die? Jesus died because the wages of sin is death, and forgiveness is not free. He purchased it with his blood. What did, why did Jesus have to live a full life? Jesus lived a full life because he offers you his full life. To guide you, to be with you, and he calls you to follow him. The third question, what does the resurrection mean for you? It means that you too will be resurrected. You'll be able to behold your king with your own eyes. You'll be able to stand on the renewed earth and worship him with your feet. And with your own hands, you can touch him. And you can touch his nail-scarred hands and his nail-scarred feet. This is what God calls you to. This is the gospel. That you will one day be able to stand before your king and behold him and worship him. Because of what he did, because of his salvation, because of his presence with you and his guidance, because he is the God of all glory. This is the king you serve. Behold him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.